Hello and welcome to episode 127 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. My guest today is Kim Yi Dion, Assistant Professor of Political Science at University of California, Riverside. She received her PhD from UCLA and has held faculty appointments at Smith College and Texas A&M University. Dr. Dion is the founder and co-host of the weekly podcast, Ufahamu Africa. She's also an editor of The Monkey Cage, a blog on politics and political science at The Washington Post. She is executive committee member of Women Also Know Stuff, an initiative to promote the scholarship of women political scientists. Dr. Dion is the author of Doomed Interventions, The Failure of Global Responses to AIDS in Africa, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. I'm a fan of your podcast, too. And it's always exciting to have fellow podcasters. It doesn't happen often. We did have Sia Kibona Clark here in the spring. So. Yes, of Hip Hop Africa. Exactly. Recent political ethnography entitled uh, Doomed Interventions, the Failure of Global Responses to AIDS in Africa, notes that today nearly half a million people in Malawi are living with HIV and are getting access to antiretroviral treatment at about 700 sites, suggesting that these interventions have produced some tangible improvements in uh, treatment access over time. Even so, your book points out some fault lines dividing grassroots uh, actors from national government actors to international uh, actors in what you call the global supply chain of AIDS interventions. And uh, your analysis points out that in the, quote, rush to stem the tide of the AIDS pandemic, international actors failed to consider the priorities of Africans. The data demonstrate a misalignment of priorities in the global AIDS interventions. Can you explain what the priorities are for a person living with HIV in rural Malawi, for example, and how these are misaligned with those of national governments, perhaps, and international donors? It's a really great question. So in Malawi, the research on which the book is based draws largely from the Malawi Longitudinal Study of Families and Health. And in that study, we asked them to prioritize five different policy issues, right? So um, access to clean water, agricultural development, education, general health services, and HIV AIDS programming. And what we found was HIV AIDS programming fell dead last among these five policy priorities. And that was true not just of Malawians who were HIV negative, but it was also true among Malawians who were HIV positive. And and we know this because in the Malawi Longitudinal Study of Families and Health, we also offered HIV testing to all of the survey respondents, and many of them accepted uh, being tested. And, and so we have that information in our data set. So what I learned through that study was that even HIV-positive Malawians have other issues that they prioritize, and that this focus in the West um, on AIDS as the major priority was was out of line with what citizens really thought, including the citizens to whom donors consider their intended beneficiaries, right? People who are HIV positive. So number one on the priority list of the people that we interviewed was access to clean water. 
And number two was agricultural development programming. And, and these are not surprising given that Malawi is a place where people remember experiencing famine, where there's regular food shortages, people decreasing their meals from three to two or to one per day. Right. So I'm not surprised that agricultural development is high. And I'm also not surprised that people give high priority to access to clean water because so much of our everyday health is dependent upon us having access to good, clean water to bathe in, to bathe our children in, to, to drink and, and to use to prepare foods. So um, and that, you know, there there isn't very much access, for example, to piped clean water. So a lot of people are relying on things like protected wells or boreholes. And I think even those public water services that are available, they're not always in great condition, right? So so there are reasons why it's, it's, um, it's almost obvious, in fact, that citizens are prioritizing these things. Now, and that's, I don't think, specific to rural Malawi, where I did much of the research for the book. I think that's also true more broadly on the continent. And we learned that from Afrobarometer data, right? So this Pan-African Research Network conducting nationally representative public opinion surveys um, that actually came out of work uh, here at Michigan State, right, and, and elsewhere, the CDD in Ghana and, and University of Cape Town in South Africa, right, we learned from Afrobarometer data that some of the biggest priorities among um, citizens interviewed in these now three dozen African countries have to do with the economy, right? People want jobs. Um, they want to make sure that the food supply is not interrupted, Right. So it's not surprising that even though Africa is the region of the world where HIV has the highest prevalence, it doesn't mean that it's the part of the world where HIV is the most important thing, the most important priority. That's really interesting and important. I found the um, chapter in your book entitled Seeing Like a Headman very interesting and a nice nod to uh, James Scott's influential book, Seeing Like a State. In fact, I was just referring to it before coming here in a lecture on Ujamaa uh, villagization to my undergrads. Uh, by focusing on village leaders, your book emphasizes the need to also incorporate local knowledge practices to reduce the likelihood of failures in these AIDS interventions. As traditional leaders, how and why are headmen in Malawi but perhaps also in other African countries, looking out for the best interests of their villagers, including their health? Well, there are a number of ways that I find them specifically looking out, out for their villagers in terms of HIV-AIDS. So uh, headmen would regularly counsel young couples before getting married, encouraging them, for example, to get an HIV test. Right to make sure everyone in everyone about to embark on this important um, rite of passage, everyone knows how healthy everyone is. Um, they would also counsel already married couples that were having challenges in their marriage. Um, you know, regularly dealing with disputes. Now, that's something that headmen have been doing for quite a long time. That's not specific to the AIDS epidemic. You know, I think most people in the parts of Africa where headmen have considerable influence see them as um, people who typically dealt with land disputes or other disputes within the community. And so the arrival of AIDS only added another layer of dispute resolution that, that um, chiefs and village headmen deal with, and that is dealing with marital disputes that um, 
that often have to do with concerns about getting infected with HIV and, and how, how to avoid infection. Um, and I think, I think what's overlooked often from people who have um, less experience witnessing some of the work that headmen do, I think it's really easy to scapegoat them and to say these are, you know, um, decentralized despots, to use the phrase of Mahmoud Mandani, um, that here are these, you know, um, men, and they are typically men, here are these men who are little kings in, in ruling over these villages. And I just, I think that that's a caricature of what chieftaincy is in rural Malawi. And I think in particular in the parts of Malawi where I've worked, sure, there are a couple of bad chiefs. I mean, but there's a couple of bad mayors in America too. That doesn't make chiefs um, or village headmen special, right? There's 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 devils and angels among us all, right? Um, but what I did see was that headmen felt accountable to their villagers. They felt responsible to their villagers. And so, of course, they care about the health of their village because if the villagers all got sick and died, who would they be the headmen of? You know, I, I think I, I, it seems kind of elementary to me now, especially now, having um, done a lot of research and, and spent a lot of time in Laos, it, it seems obvious to me that the headman has to care about the interests of his, of his villagers because if he didn't, he wouldn't have a village to rule over. Shifting to the subject of the talk you just gave at the MSU African Studies Center, which was titled The Malawian Voter, Determinants of Voting Behavior in a Democratizing Context. Can you summarize um, the insights that you shared with the audience uh, from this new research and its implications for democracy in Malawi? Sure. So that project is actually part of a larger project I'm doing with Boniface Dulani, who's actually a Michigan's a Michigan State alumnus in the PhD program. He got his PhD in political science in 2011. And we have a larger book project called African Voters, where we're trying to understand what influences whether citizens turn out to vote in elections and what influences who they decide to vote for, right? So we're looking at, as political scientists would call it, turnout and vote choice. Um, and what I presented today was actually a chapter on Malawi, and it draws, uh, it builds on earlier work that Boniface and I have done with Amanda Edgel, who's a postdoc at uh, the VDEM Institute, the University of Gothenburg, Sweden. And what, what we did was we looked at multiple waves of Afrobarometer survey data to try to understand why do Malawians turn out to vote and how do they choose whether or not to support the incumbent? What are the demographic characteristics of people that might be able to predict? Uh, whether they turn out to vote or whether they support the incumbent. And some of the takeaways from that, I think the biggest takeaway from that is building on the work that Mike Bratton and colleagues have done in, in studying earlier waves of Afrobarometer across multiple countries, is that there's something really special about Malawians who were adults during the dictatorship, the personalist dictatorship of Hastings Kamuzu Banda, right? So from 1964 to 1994, Malawi was ruled by Banda, and there he, he named himself president for life in 1971, after which there were no longer presidential elections until, of course, the referendum to return to multi-party elections in 1993. But prior to that, you know, all of the elections that were held were um, elections for members of parliament, right? And so um, what, we, what we're interested in more generally in the project and what I talked about was uh, doing some oral histories with older Malawians to understand what elections and campaigns were like before the return of multi-party competition. And, and, and that's 
that's because we learned from this research that we did that I presented today about there's something special about having lived under the dictatorship. Those people always turn out to vote. I mean, they turn out to vote in much higher numbers, at least as reported in Afrobarometer, than um, than people who weren't adults during the dictatorship. And I think there's something special there. And so we're super interested in sitting down with some older Malawians and just hearing more about, you know, what is special to them about elections that have been held since 1993. And the generational dimension of elections in Malawi was really important in the most recent elections in 2019 when you were an observer Mm -hmm. uh, in the elections. These were very controversial. There were widespread allegations of electoral fraud. There were widespread protests led by youth. The elections were officially won by President Peter Mutarika of the Democratic Progressive Party. Um, What was your take on what happened in May of 2019 in Malawi? Well, I'll say this. On election day, it was really um, it was really something to behold. You know, people were very happy. Um, people were very proud to participate in the election. It was it was unlike any other election I had witnessed. I, I felt there was a certain there was a palpable feeling of promise, I think. And I don't know that that is because anyone thought, you know, government was going to change. I think that people just really, they took the election seriously. And there were long lines in the morning and people waited patiently, quietly. And when people were finished voting uh, and had their inked finger, they were very happy to take selfies and to celebrate when they were done. And then, of course, go back to the business of their lives, their everyday lives after, after having completed the vote. I think that that joy was quickly extinguished when we get to the point where the counting is taking place. Um, And as people learned of reports of irregularities, maybe not in their own polling station, but in other polling stations. And, you know, information spreads very quickly, um, particularly through WhatsApp. I think, you know, certainly people were also sharing on Facebook and Twitter, but really, I think that there should be a lot more attention and concern about how quickly information spreads through WhatsApp, especially mis- and disinformation. And um, talk of irregularities came early. And, and then I think it wasn't so much about, you know, it seemed 2019, especially in comparison to 2014, the Malawi Electoral Commission seemed much more ready in terms of having materials at all of the polling stations or polling stations to open on time. It was the vote counting that I think a lot of people started to lose faith in what was happening. Uh, you know, there was a court injunction that kept the uh, electoral commission from announcing results, and then there was another court ruling that got them to announce the results, and then they declare incumbent president Peter Mutarika president, and and the winner of the 2019 elections, and he has a hasty swearing-in ceremony, and you think it's all going to be over. But it wasn't because people were unhappy. And I don't necessarily think that that meant that they were unhappy with the outcome. I don't I don't I think that there were definitely pe- members of the opposition who were unhappy that their that that their candidate lost. For sure, I think that's fueled some of the protests. But I also think that there's been a lot of concern among Malawians 
about the integrity of the election. And some of this is, you know, some of this is just based on the fact that irregularities that had happened, you know, they've been confirmed, right? That there were, in fact, you know, the use of uh, correction fluid, which is locally known as TIPEX. So there's lots of memes on the internet of TIPEX in, in the use of, um, of aggregate vote total forms that were supposed to be sent to the Electoral Commission for a final tally. You know, there were there were concerns about um, as well, you know, uh, ballot stuffing and. But on top of that, then there were also photographs of the electoral commissioner Jane Ansa celebrating with the ruling party at the president's inauguration and and elsewhere. And so there there are concerns that she may have been partisan. I don't know whether that's founded or not, but I know that. Some of the protests that people have been, some of the demands from the protesters have to do actually with the firing of Jane Ansa, the, the electoral commissioner. And so I think that the, the protests, and those protests are sustained. They're still ongoing. Just this month, you know, in October 2019, there, there, the protests had gotten so bad in Lilongwe that protesters actually stoned to death a policeman who was trying to corral protesters from, um, from, from, from a certain road area. And... You know, Lilongwe may be the capital city, but it's also in the central region where the Malawi Congress Party has significant influence. And so a lot of the people who actually live in the region surrounding Lilongwe are are not supporters of the ruling party, are not supporters of President Mutarika. Now, you're not just a political scientist. You're also a digital scholar. You're the host of the successful podcast Ufahamu Africa, podcast about life and politics in Africa. I think now you're at 76 episodes and counting. Congrats. Thank you. You were kind enough to invite me on the show in one of the earliest episodes, and I've been a regular listener ever since. Why did you decide to start a podcast? Well, that's a good question. At the time, you might recall, I was a member of the faculty at Smith College, which is a women's college in Western Massachusetts, and which graciously supported the podcast through allowing me to hire undergraduate research and production fellows to assist me in, in producing the podcast. And I was having a real existential crisis about what I was doing. You know, I um, come from a blue collar background, and I was the first in my family to go to college. And I came up in public schools. I went to public schools growing up. And then when I went to college and to graduate school, I went to public schools. And so I really firmly, deeply believe in public education. I think that everyone should have access to learning, you know, to to higher education and to learning. And, And that's not limited to a small set of topics. I think that everyone should have access to learning about the world. And I think that Africa is an important part of the world that more people need to learn more about. And yet, here I was, teaching at an institution where you had to pay $70,000 a year to go to school, and it was an elite institution you had to apply to get into, and I felt I, I was concerned at how this public investment in me was then paywalled to, you know, who could afford and and get access to this elite institution. And that bothered me. And I wasn't sure what I was doing with my life. And so I thought, you know, what if I had a way to reach more people? You don't even have to be a college student. You don't have to be someone who wants to go to college. But you're someone who's curious to know more about the continent. And you want to understand something more about Africa, but you're 
not necessarily interested in the negative or stereotypical treatments of the continent. And so I wanted something, I wanted to create something for, for, for people who were not imaginary for me, people who are my friends and my family, who want to understand better the work that I do or the work that my colleagues do. And um, I don't, not, not in a dumbed down way, but just in a way that was accessible and free, right? So all of our episodes, just like the ones here at Africa Past and Present, are Creative Commons licensed, which means anyone can download them, you know, with an internet connection and share them freely, and um, and and post them on their own podcast feeds. You know, we just we just want to get the information out there, and we want to share the work that our colleagues in African studies and other creators and thinkers are 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 doing related to the continent. So, how is your show produced, and and why did you choose the format? It's a weekly uh, podcast. Um, you know, where do you record your interviews and, and how much time and labor goes into each episode? Well, anyone who's a listener of Ufama Africa knows that it it means to be a weekly podcast. And there, there were some parts of season two where we didn't quite meet that goal. Um, but it, it has been hard, actually, to have a weekly podcast, uh, to follow the news closely enough, uh, to be able to talk about it intelligently and, and accessibly to our listeners, that that is a that is a real challenge. But I also think that that makes me a better instructor of African politics because I'm following what's happening in the world and trying to think about how that relates to what I know, for example, from political science and from African studies more broadly. Um, so what's really helped currently is actually my co-host Rachel Beatty Riedel. So the podcast, I wouldn't say it was going to die, but it, it, it was it was uh, suffering there for a bit because it is a lot of work for one person to do, especially if you don't have resources. And you know when when uh, Rachel approached me about joining as a co-host of the show, it was a real godsend. I mean, she, at the time, she was the director of Northwestern University's Program of African Studies, and so had access to not just resources to hire a research and production fellow, so someone who could help with editing and and with social media promotion. It also brought a lot of guests, right? So being at a place where African studies is valued, right? So a place, for example, like Michigan State, which has a Title VI African Studies Center, or a place like Northwestern University, which had a program of African studies, you regularly have scholars coming in. And so you have an opportunity to interview people. And so I think you know, not to mention, I just have great respect for the work that Rachel does, her her research and the way she approaches questions related to African politics. And so it's 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 been it's been a great little marriage since uh, she's come on. And now she's moved on, of course, to Cornell and the Inaudi Center. Um, and, and that's going to bring other awesome guests. And this year she's on on leave in France. And this was one big challenge I had with the podcast. You know, my own limitations of what I know about the continent, my own networks to people who are connected to the continent, they're largely Anglophone, 
right? Mm -hmm. But having Rachel as part of the podcast now, you know, she's a lot of her work has been in Francophone Africa, and and this is her second uh, year doing a, a sabbatical year in France, and that just brings in a whole different range of scholars and and even perspectives on thinking about the um, the politics on the continent, and, and that's been it's been welcome to the podcast. And so do you do the post-production yourself or do yes, you have I learned, assistance like I, we do? <laughs> I mean, I learned myself how to edit things. Well, I think when I first started with Sarah Agatoni, she was just so gifted at doing all the editing. I never had to. And, you know, like all good students, she graduated. So <laughs> I had to, I you know, I had to learn a lot on the fly. And she she did a good job of, of teaching me. So uh, I regularly do the editing myself. This year, though, we have a research and professor production fellow who is a journalism student at Northwestern. And so, um, so Zimone Perez, who you might hear every now and then in an episode of Ufahamu Africa, typically introducing our guests, he's quite excellent at doing the editing, but you know, in, in times of need, I'll, I'll do it myself. Yes. This is an important question. The assistance, the support that we can get Mm -hmm. as academics, who hosts podcasts, because it is, yes, a labor of love, but it's also very time-consuming. And at the same time, we want to do it well. There's a a fair degree of skepticism among our colleagues of various types and for various reasons. And I think there's also interest among younger scholars in particular, you know, about diving into podcasting. Mm -hmm. And I think not having support is a huge barrier. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's something to really uh, keep in mind for those out there who are weighing... Uh, whether they would like to start a podcast or not, because it can get overwhelming fairly quickly. And the podcast environment is very crowded now. When we started, uh, Peter Lim and I started in 2008, it was it was not. Uh, but now it is. And so when if you get into it, you want to do as good a job as possible. And that means good audio quality. Mm-hmm. That means top-notch editing and, mm-hmm. and, of course, great guests and all of that. And it's not easy to do. No, and I mean, you all were pioneers. It was, we actually listened to quite a and number. We had no idea what we were doing, yeah. of course. I'm <laughs> well, serious. <laughs> but but the, quality, the quality of the podcasts here at Africa Past and Present have been really excellent. And we, so before we even started the podcast, and so anyone who's considering a podcast, you know, I think this was the best thing I did. I spent six months re- researching podcasts. I listened to them. I diagrammed them. Um, and, and Sarah Agatoni, too, you know, we listen, and not just to podcasts on Africa, because there weren't very many, frankly, when we were doing the research on this, and I think it was 2016. But, you know, we we listened to, you know, we, we paid attention to the podcast we were already listening to that we liked, right? So right. I, you probably have your own favorite podcast. Mine is Ear Hustle, which has nothing to do with political science or Africa, right? It's, 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 well, at least the first few seasons were all broadcasted from inside San Quentin Prison in California, right? So there, and, and of course, you know, everyone loved Serial and, and, and there are other podcasts. So we, we tried to understand what is the way to format a podcast that would keep listeners interested. And I think that that's, that's paid a lot of dividends to us. I also think, though, that much as, you know, I have a quality mic and I have um, good editing software. And, um, I have a good recorder that I can take with me to conferences when I want to meet with people offsite. I also think that, you know, a good iPhone would be sufficient and, you know, decent, 
free software are available online. So there are some ways to cut corners. Now, maybe the sound quality wouldn't be 100, but you could probably get it to 80, you know? And um, I think what matters most is having good content. And if you can, if you have a good idea for creative content that someone doesn't already have out there, or maybe they do and they're doing it poorly, I don't know. I, I, I still think there's space for it. And I think the challenge, as, as you were uh, implying earlier, for scholars is that this is not something that has traditionally been valued among scholars. So if you care about things like getting tenure or getting a tenure track job or you know, whatever comes with, you know, typical accolades and the annual review, for instance, right. You know, these, these things, you know, they matter to a lot of people and, and podcasting or the other forms of public engagement that I do, like writing for a blog at the Washington post, those things don't typically quote count for, for the kind of work we do. And I, I, I think that's a major barrier to a lot of people. It's not a barrier to me because those are not the things that I value in life. I mean, I would love to have tenure for sure. I'm so grateful to have a tenure track job. Like this is all great. You know, I have healthcare, I can pay my mortgage, like, you know, but that's not why I got a PhD. I got a PhD because I wanted to learn more about a topic. And then I wanted to take what I had learned about that topic and share it with other people. And the podcast and writing for The Monkey Cage, that allows me to do that. And in fact, it gives me a broader audience with which I can do that. So I'm not, so yes, it, the typical things that count for academics, it, it doesn't help. But for the things that I value and care about, it does. It's also these podcasts that can help other colleagues, I think, consider the value of these as academic output. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the quality is good uh, and the audience is engaged, then why shouldn't these be accounted for and, um, and help broaden sort of our conception of what an academic does day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out, right? And, and I also, you mentioned the monkey cage blog for the Washington Post uh, that you and Laura C., I think, are yes. uh, the main movers. And she's a previous guest of the podcast uh, as well when we were trying to do a, a series on uh, digital African studies. And she has, what, 20-something thousand Twitter followers. 32,000 last I checked, I'm, I'm yes. I'm a superstar. Uh, <laughs> we, we, all, we all are way behind. Um, and I noticed this summer, for example, you had an interesting cross-fertilization between mm -hmm. the monkey cage and Ufahamu Africa. So mm -hmm. between the blog and the podcast, um, maybe this is a nice way to kind of start bringing the conversation to a close. How do you see those two digital activities, the blog and the podcast, fitting together? And how did this summer's experiment play out? How did you feel about it? Yeah, so I, I think that any way where we can reach audiences beyond the ivory tower is an avenue that we should consider exploring. And that's what that's what I like about both of these outlets. I think um, in particular, this summer's experiment, the you know, broadcasting the African politics summer reading spectacular book reviews onto Ufahamu Africa was it was really great. I mean, it was a lot of work. I had to do all of the recording and editing myself, 
Um, but it was a way for us to take a break from other content, which I think we needed, right? You always need to have a break and then refresh and reanalyze and think about what's going to happen the next season. And so we needed, we needed the break. But, um, one thing, one, I have loved being a member of the editorial board for the monkey cage of the Washington post. I am not in love with the fact that the Washington Post is behind a paywall. And if really I want to do public scholarship, public engagement with a broader audience, I don't want them to have to pay to get access to that information. And so one one item of my agenda was not just to share these great book reviews about new books in, in politics in Africa, with a broader audience that listens to Ufama Africa, I wanted it to be free, right? And if we, you know, we wait a couple of days before we broadcast after the review has been written, but then once we broadcast it, it's Creative Commons license and anyone can have access to it. And so for me, it was it was, it was was trying to take something that was behind a, a paywall and make it free. And it, it has been really successful. And, you know, every summer I love reading all the great books. And in fact, Betsy Schmidt, who was an, uh, a guest on an earlier version of uh, an earlier episode of Africa Past and Present, was one of the books that we had reviewed and then, and then read aloud. And, and it's just so great to learn about the work that folks are doing um, and, and to engage with it and then share it with our listeners. You know, not everyone knows about new books that have come out and, you know, Typically, the books that they do hear about happen to be from a certain demographic. They don't tend to be books written by women. They don't tend to be books written by scholars on the continent. Um, maybe they're e-books or maybe they're books only available in South Africa. But we want to bring attention to those great books and to broaden the notion of what it means to be a book about African politics. And we're trying to do that with a series. And, and we hope to continue doing it each summer going forward. Well, I hope you do because it was a great project and I enjoyed learning about uh, books in a discipline that's not my specialty but that is uh, really uh, opening all sorts of avenues of knowledge and you know you say it's this this digital scholarship is great for disseminating ideas outside the ivory tower and that's certainly true but it's also valuable inside the ivory tower Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the the great contributions that uh, uh, your work does. So uh, thank you so much, Kimi Dion, for uh, speaking with Africa Past and Press. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical support is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. You can stream and download all episodes on our website, afropod.aodl.org. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. To get in touch, send email to alegi, that's A-L-E-G-I, at msu.edu. Thanks for listening.